0: This morning, I ask you on this Palm Sunday to please open up your Bibles to the passage in Matthew, where we have the triumphal entry, but we're going to start a little bit earlier than where it might be indicated in your Bible. So Matthew chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 29, we're going to read all the way through chapter 21, verse 17. So 20, verse 29, through 21, verse 17. So remember that the chapter divisions are not inspired if I could have written the little headings and put the chapter of divisions, I would have put it at verse 29 of chapter 20. Now, I doubt anyone here knows this name, and let me know if you do. Do you know who Leon Febres Cordero is? Anyone know Leon Febres Cordero? Nobody? I cannot believe it. Well, Leon Febres Cordero was the president of Ecuador from 1983 to 1987. I mean, come on, folks. Don't you know your Ecuadorian political history? (laughs) Leon was a a larger-than-life figure in Ecuador. Big guy, um, bushy hair, big mustache, kind of looked like Einstein, chain smoker. Um, He was an unusually conservative politician for Latin American politics. He was a friend of Ronald Reagan's at the time. Uh, his presidency had all kinds of ups and downs, including uh, staving off an attempted coup d'état. Uh, and one day, I remember in high school that uh, my best friend and I were off campus. This was probably 1987, his last year in, the o- in office. My my uh, friend and I were off campus eating lunch at, at Tropi Burger. Okay, it, it sounds worse in Spanish, Tropi Burger. All right. Um, we were eating at Troppy Burger. And uh, all of a sudden, there was a lot of commotion outside. And we saw people kind of running to the edge of the road. And so we picked up our Troppy Burger and went outside and to see what was happening. And, and we saw a motorcade coming down the road. There was a string of charcoal gray Mercedes Benzes flanked by military police on, on either side of the highway. And then overhead, there was a military helicopter that we heard flying. And then as the motorcade was passing by, people started waving and different things. And as it came in front of us, we saw sitting in one of those Mercedes Benz was Leon Febres Cordero, right? There he was in his military procession, probably heading to the airport. And I remember my, my buddy and I looked at each other and we were, dude, that was Leon, all right? He, all, he just went by Leon. Like, Man, did you see that? We were excited for a brief moment until we were reminded that we still had the rest of our Tropiburger burger to eat, for a moment, we felt like we had brushed shoulders with, well, with somebody important, at least in Ecuador. We felt the excitement, and then it, it quickly faded. Today is Palm Sunday, the day when many churches around the world remember the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was not in a motorcade with military escort. Matter of fact, his entry was quite the opposite of that. But it was a notable and symbolic event, which was a clear unveiling of who he was. Namely, that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Deliverer, the Anointed One of God. And it was this dramatic entrance into the city of David, into Jerusalem. An entrance that had all the onlookers stirred up with excitement. It was this entrance into Jerusalem that would inaugurate or put into motion all the events of Jesus' final week of his earthly ministry, what we sometimes call Holy Week or or Passion Week. So this is the text we're looking at today. So please stand with me, if you would, as we read the triumphal entry from Matthew's Gospel, and to help us establish what I believe is some important context, we are going to begin in verse 29 of chapter 20. We stand at Harbors in the honor of the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says this, verse 29 of Matthew 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you were communicating as you left Jericho and headed to Jerusalem and entered into the city in such a spectacular and strategic manner. Lord, I pray this morning that you would reveal to our hearts through your Holy Spirit what it is you want to teach us about your kingship. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to open up ears and to open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see and savor the glorious kingship of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, in the flow of the gospel of Matthew, we see that from Matthew 16, verse 21 onward, that Jesus has resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. We see that in the synoptic gospels, that Jesus, at one point in his ministry, when he knows the time is right, he sets his face toward Jerusalem, meaning that he was determined to, to go to, to Jerusalem for this final week of his earthly ministry. Which means that Jesus was had a resolute, unwavering focus on the cross. He was heading to Jerusalem for a purpose. And he knew what was coming. But the joy of obeying and his father and completing his father's will. And bringing uh, sons to glory. That pushed him and, and drove him. So that as we come to today's text, we need to see that what Jesus is doing as he enters Jerusalem, he is doing it with very much intent and design. There's a lot of purpose and pre-planning to what Jesus is doing as he comes into Jerusalem. We need to understand that the events of the Passion Week are not a series of random things that happened to Jesus, which he then was able to overcome at the end with the glorious resurrection. No, we need to see that Jesus is in control of everything happening during Passion Week, every detail of it, including this triumphal entry. It is intentional and it is planned. The triumphal entry is designed to be an unveiling. An unveiling of for all who had eyes to see of Jesus' kingship and the nature of his kingship. What I want us to see in today's text are five ways that Jesus unveils his kingship. Five ways that Jesus unveils his kingship. Up until this point, Jesus has sort of kept everything on the, on the low down. He has commanded demons not to make him known. He has told people that he healed to tell no one even in the famous Matthew 16 passage, which happens right before that, where Jesus says he's heading to Jerusalem, even the famous Matthew 16 passage where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with this glorious answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We read in verse 20 that Jesus says, it says this, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So even when Jesus was ministering and people came and wanted to, to, by force, make him the king, he would retreat to a desolate place. So he's been keeping it on the lowdown. He's been keeping it concealed to a degree. But everything changes now. Everything's different now as he comes into Jerusalem. Now the time is right. And as Jesus rides in on this donkey, he pulls back the veil, not only to reveal his kingship, but what kind of king he is. So, so I want you to walk with me through this text as we look at five revelations about Jesus' kingship. And first of all, the kingship of Jesus is revealed as He, first of all, as his pedigree is openly embraced. The kingship of Jesus is unveiled as his pedigree is openly embraced. And, and so what I mean by that is Jesus is going to self-identify with a specific title here called Son of David, verse 20 of, of verse 29. Chapter twenty, and as they went out of Jericho, so so here's Jesus leaving Jericho, heading to Jerusalem. A great crowd followed him. It's the same crowd that comes into Jerusalem with him. A great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out. Here it is, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David, Son of David, Son of David was a. ...or is a messianic title. It means that Jesus was the long-awaited heir to David's throne. It comes from the prophecy made in 2 Samuel chapter 7... ...where we read of this unbreakable promise of God, verse 12. It says, "This is Nathan prophesying to David... ...when your days are fulfilled in your life and you lie down with your brothers... ...I will raise up your offspring after you... ...who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom... He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that prophetic word from Nathan was in an initial and partial way fulfilled through David's immediate son, Solomon. But only in an initial way, only in a partial way, as with many of the Old Testament prophecies, there are layers of fulfillment. And Jesus is the ultimate, the greater fulfillment of this word from God. Jesus is the son of David, but the greater son of David. And all the Jews knew that. They they knew that prophecy wasn't just about Solomon. They were looking for a greater son of David yet to come as well. And Jesus is saying, I am he. The blind men rightly cry out, Son of David! Now you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Jesus has already been called Son of David earlier in his earthly ministry. That's true, but this is the first time that Jesus openly embraces it. Openly receives that title. Look back with me if you want to. You can go back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. We have a very similar story about two other blind men. Matthew 9, verse 27 through 30. But you'll notice a big difference with that healing. It says this, As Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on the Son of David. There's the same title. There's the same plea. Verse 28, When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, Be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And then it says this in verse 30. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. See that no one knows about it. So something's happening here that's different. There's an open receiving of this title now. Whereas Jesus, though he knows exactly who he is, is strategically waiting for an unveiling to happen on Palm Sunday. Now, this title, Son of David, proclaims the humanity of Christ Jesus. 100% man descended from the line of David. Jesus came from a royal, but as you know, a very messed up lineage. Some of you in here think, well, my family tree is pretty messed up. You, you don't want to see my family tree. You don't want to know what family I came from. You don't, you don't want to see that. Well, friends, though Jesus came is a Son of David, the, the lineage is pretty messed up. You find some interesting characters in Jesus' lineage, including different Gentiles and prostitutes. And and remember, Judah. Judah was was the son of Israel from which the, the lineage was to come. And if you go back to Exodus chapters 37 and 38, what you have is this contrast between this guy named Joseph, who demonstrates great integrity and purity, and then you have Judah, who... Who compromises himself in many different ways, including a assorted sexual relationship with his daughter in law that led to one of the um, an, um, ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he had this pretty messed up family lineage, and so Jesus came to identify with sinners. That's why his lineage is so messed up. He came to identify with the lost and the hurting and with sinners, though himself without sin. So the Son of David is reflecting his humanity. And God had kept his promise. He had sent a greater son of David who was now on the scene. Now the crowds in verse 31, we're back in chapter 20 now, rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they continued to cry out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And then Jesus, in verse 32, it says, In stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And that's a kind of an interesting question. It's kind of a loaded question. Is What do you want me to do for you? You Would think it would be pretty obvious. They said to him, Lord... Let our eyes be opened, and Jesus, in pity, oh friends, Jesus is such a compassionate king touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed Him. Now, I think the reason Jesus asked this question, "What do you want me to do for you?" is because there's something greater happening in this healing. There's a deeper eyes being opened by Jesus in these men's hearts. The healing itself declares something about Jesus' kingship. And we'll focus on healing when we get to verse 14 of chapter 21. But I want to consider the symbolism of this healing. There are two blind men who, though they cannot see with their eyes, can see with their hearts that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. Meanwhile, there's many in the crowd, and, and most if not all the Jewish leaders who are there present, who though they think they have eyes to see, have hearts that are absolutely blind. And I think the symbolism of this healing and the deeper healing that happened in the souls of these men is represented in this passage or can be seen in this passage by looking at some of the words in the passage. In verse 33, the men ask for their eyes to be opened. The word eyes is mentioned twice, verse 33 and then in verse 34. In verse 33, they say, Can Jesus, will you open our eyes? And the word there, the Greek word there used for eyes is the, is the, is the common Greek word for eyes, the, the root form of which is optomos, okay? This is, the, this is the regular word for eyes. But then in verse 34, in compassion, it says that Jesus touched their eyes, but this time it uses a different word. It uses the word homa, and the word homa means something totally different. Matter of fact, R. T. France, a commentator, he says this that it's an unusual and poetic word, sometimes used to refer to the eyes of the soul, suggesting that this physical healing pointed to a much greater blindness that Jesus was dispelling. There was a deeper blindness that Jesus was dealing with with these men. So the Son of David, he sets his face toward the city of David, Jerusalem. And what we see in him is that he is openly now embracing the pedigree of the king. And as he comes to the city of Jerusalem, he has this deliberate and very well-planned demonstration that he's about to do that will reveal his kingship even further. And the next thing is that we see is his humility being purposely displayed. His humility is purposely displayed. Verse 1 of chapter 21. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, Jesus isn't stealing. I mean, a lot of people struggle with this passage. Would Jesus go into, like, just steal? It's like, I mean, back then, would that be sort of like carjacking? You know, take the donkey no, that's not what's happening. It wasn't uncommon in those days for someone to come into a village and, and ask and request to use a donkey, especially if, a, if an important figure were coming into town or if a rabbi were coming in time. Sometimes it wouldn't just be a donkey. It's a rabbi needs a place to stay. Can he, can he stay in your home? And so this wasn't an uncommon cultural thing during those days. And, and I think, again, we see the compassion of Jesus on display here. Jesus is the only one that, I mean, Matthew is the only one that mentions two animals, all the other uh, store, um, accounts just have one animal. He has two animals here, and I think that his compassion is on display because the, what he's riding into town is the colt. It's, the, it's, the, it's this donkey that has never been ridden before. It hasn't been broken before. And so how does he help this little donkey, this young colt, handle this situation? He brings the mother donkey along with it. So as they come into town, he even has compassion for the animals as he rides into Jerusalem. Verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So this wasn't stealing. This was borrowing. It was using this for... To bring Jesus in in this manner. Now, remember, I said earlier, this isn't spontaneous. Jesus obviously has every detail of this planned out. He's putting the scene together deliberately. He's making a statement about himself. And Matthew leaves us no doubt as to what statement it is that Jesus is making. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That's Zechariah. Zechariah 9, saying, um, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This quote, as I said earlier, is from Zechariah nine, verse nine to be specific. And so as Jesus Jesus comes into town, this this passage of scripture, everyone knew this was a messianic passage of scripture, and he's 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 painting a picture here to draw their minds to that specific text so they could see that he is now writing in, making a claim to the throne. As he comes into town, Jesus is making a claim to the throne. He's not a a pretender like Herod. He's no imposter like Pilate. Here comes the true king. For the geeks out there, it's Aragon coming back to Gondor. For the kids, it's Simba coming back to the Pride Lands. The king is back. The king is here. And though Jesus is received well now, we'll see in the following verses he'll be rejected later. For the people were blind to the full intimation of, of Zechariah's prophecy. They didn't understand the full meaning of, his, of the prophecy because it says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble. And that word could also, is also translated in other places, meek or gentle or kind or benevolent or even gracious. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is coming into town not as a military conqueror to seek and destroy his enemies, but as a humble servant to seek and save his enemies. He is unveiling the fact that he is a very different kind of king. Now the crowds, for the most part, didn't get it. But they should have. They should have because military heroes don't ride in on donkeys. Unless you're Sancho Panza riding along with Don Quixote going towards the windmills, military heroes don't ride donkeys. Think about it. You don't see statues of liberators in plazas and in, 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 in town squares of heroes sitting on a donkey. Donkeys were not and are not wartime animals. Instead, they are peacetime animals. In Bible times, it wasn't unusual for a king to ride into town on a donkey. We actually see that in the Old Testament. It wasn't unusual to come into town on a donkey, but kings rode donkeys during times of peace, not during times of war. They rode horses during times of war. The arrival of King Jesus was not to make war. Instead, he was coming to bring a message of peace, terms of amnesty. You see, The Jews, as well as all of mankind, failed to understand who the true enemy is. Inherently, all men see evil as something outside of themselves, something to be saved from. But in reality, we are all sinners, and the Bible says we are born in enmity with God. We are born enemies of God. We are born as insurrectionists, and the most important battleground is the arena of our hearts. We need a greater salvation. And so in rode Jesus, gentle, humble, meek, not to save people from the tyranny of Rome, but to save people from the wrath of God by bringing them amnesty, an offer of peace, a message of reconciliation. It's easy for us to condemn the crowds for not seeing this, right? But how many of us today welcome Jesus for all the wrong reasons into our lives? Hosanna, it's the transliteration of the Hebrew word, save us. Hosanna, son of David, save us. Save us from a dysfunctional family, from financial misfortune, from chronic sickness, from thorny relationships, from human misery. And with palm branches cut from the tree of cultural Christianity, we wave them high all the while expecting deliverance from things that are far too puny. For Jesus comes aiming to deliver us from something much worse, from slavery to sin, from the love of self, and thus from the domain of Satan. That type of deliverance results in gospel transformation that doesn't, that that means we don't have to be removed from our trials. But now that we're in Christ, we can endure our trials because we've been saved from something much worse than our trials. That's what Jesus is riding in to bring. A much greater deliverance, a much greater salvation. And so we should not be looking to the things of this world, but to heavenly things. For Jesus did not come to carry out war against our difficult life, but to offer us peace with God. And so the meek, humble king with unfathomably deep pity for sinners comes in to offer amnesty peace with god and that's what he's been saying all along as 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 was read earlier in the passage from matthew chapter 11 come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light friends see and savor the humility of king jesus we read next in verse 6, the disciples went and did exactly as Jesus directed them. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, sort of as a saddle. And he sat on them, them plural, meaning the cloaks, not the two animals. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, the crowds were at least in part seeing what Jesus was trying to communicate. That's why they began to do this. When they lay the, the, their, their cloaks on the ground, that was a, that was a sign of submission. We see that in 2 Kings 9 verse 13 where they would lay the cloaks down on the ground as the king came into town as a sign of submission. But we also see them cutting down branches and waving them and putting them in the road too. Now what does all this mean? Well, to understand sort of the symbolism there, there's, there's lots of ideas out there as to what was being symbolized and some conjectures that, well, maybe this was happening earlier in the year when, uh, during the Feast of Booths when people would cut down tree limbs for, the, for that feast. And, but, but what was really happening here was simply that it was a symbol of deliverance when they would wave those palm branches. You see, in the intertestamental period, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, and you can read these in the apoc- apocryphal books, which are not scripture, but are helpful for understanding Jewish history, we, we see in the Maccabean um, uh, revolt against the Greeks, Antiochus Epiphanes had come into the temple. Uh, this is about 150 years before all of this. He had come into the temple, and he would offered pig's blood on the altar, and he had... Um, desecrated the temple and set up shrines to Greek gods in the temple. And so that, that led Judas Maccabeus and others to revolt against the Greeks and to to carry out a, a very uh, courageous war against them and drive them out. And as they drove the Greeks out, they came into town driving the Greeks out and the people greeted them with palm branches as they came in. Deliverance. And they also immediately after driving the Greeks out went in and Removed all of the altars and shrines from the temple. That's interesting, isn't it? 150 years earlier, there was a cleansing of the temple. There was a Palm Sunday. And now here we have a greater king coming into town and he's about to do something much greater with the temple. And so we have the palm branches going. It's a symbol of deliverance the crowds had full expectation that Jesus was indeed the Messiah who would rule forever. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm uh, 118, verses 25 to 26. Verse 10 says, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Now you may be thinking, wait a second. They've just been calling him king. Now they're calling him prophet. What's up? No, no, what they're saying, what's happening here is the crowd saying, who is this? In other words, who are you saying is son of David? Who are you proclaiming, Hosanna, son of David? And they say, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And then it says the city was stirred up. What does that remind you of, the city being stirred up? Here at the end of Jesus' ministry comes to Jerusalem, the city's troubled. When else was the city troubled? Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come into town looking for the king. And the city was all stirred up. And here at the end of his ministry, Jesus comes in unveiling the king. And the city is stirred up. This is what Jesus does to people. He prompts a reaction. He leaves no middle ground. You can be troubled or stirred, but you can't be ambivalent. You can worship or sneer, but you can't ignore him. And so Jesus arrives purposely displaying his humility, causing the city to be stirred up. And the next thing we see him unveil about his kingship is simply this. His supremacy is boldly asserted as he comes into the temple. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now I think a couple of things are happening here. First of all, Jesus is indeed angry about the commercialization of worship and the corruption inherent in that. You see, people had to have the temple coinage in order to be able to pay the temple tax. But the temple coinage could only be exchanged in the temple. So people would bring their other money, exchange it for the temple coins to pay their tax. But the exchange rates were ridiculous. Some scholars say that people would have to pay a whole day's wage in order to get the temple coins they needed in order to pay the temple tax secondly the worshipers would have to buy animals for the sacrifice now technically they could bring their own but there were these inspectors in the temple who didn't want to offer up any unblemished animal to the lord according to the law but what they would do is reject any animal someone else brought so they had to buy the ones that were being bought in the temple at much higher rates than what people could have bought outside of the temple and so it was it was a racket and the priests were, in, were involved in it as well. It was, a, it was corruption to the core. And that's what's going on here. And certainly, Jesus is angry about this. Also, this is all happening in the court of the Gentiles. The very place where God-fearing non-Jews could come and worship the Lord was filled with all this junk. And so, the Jewish people had, in essence, failed their mandate to be light unto the Gentiles. They were, in essence, shutting out foreigners and causing people to not be able to come and worship the one true God. This angered Jesus, so he begins to overturn the tables. That's why he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And and if you read that text in Isaiah, in its context, it's specifically referring to Gentiles coming to the Lord. By the way, the Zechariah 9 text as well, if you read down 9, 9, and then read verse 10, it talks about this king that rides into Jerusalem bringing deliverance to the nations. Both of these texts refer to Gentiles being brought in to the people of God. So the Messiah comes in, he overturns the tables, but there's more to see here. And just as there's heavy symbolism and meaning in the way Jesus came into Jerusalem, so too here there's much more that's being communicated. Now to help us see that, we need to understand this is the second cleansing of the temple. This is the second cleansing of the temple. The first one took place early in Jesus' ministry. It's only recorded in John and this one takes place at the end of his ministry. And this second cleansing is different in a very important way. You see in the first one that Jesus brings judgment on the corruption, on the money lenders, on the sellers, just like he does here. But there's a big difference in this one. Look at, look at what he says next. It says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Something more is happening here. It's as if Jesus is not only driving out the corruption, it's as if he's setting aside the whole system. In essence, he's saying this buying and selling of sacrifices, it's over. It's coming to an end. And so it was, for in four days, now this happened on Monday, Palm Sunday, but then he cleanses the temple on Monday. In four days, Jesus would offer up one final, supreme sacrifice In four days, the buying and selling would be done. Corruption would be gone. Sacrificial shadows of the insufficient blood of bulls and goats was fading away. In four days, the perfect, pure blood of the Lamb of God would be shed. And as we read in Matthew 27, verse 50, the curtain of the temple will be torn in two from top to bottom. If you think I'm reading too much into this, Jesus doesn't just quote one Old Testament passage when he comes to the temple. He quotes two. The second one he quotes is Jeremiah seven eleven, when he says, you make it a den of robbers. And I would encourage you to go look at Jeremiah seven eleven when you have time. I don't have time to exposit that passage here. But it's much more than about selling and buying stuff in the temple complex. You see, the Jews of Jeremiah's day refused to hear God's warning through the prophets that he was going to wipe out Jerusalem, that he was going to destroy the temple. Instead, they had this superstition: so long as they had the temple with them, they were going to be okay. And so they were putting their hope in the temple, in the temple, in the temple. They were even chanting, "Oh, the temple of God, the house of God, the house of God, the house of God." They had this chant, this superstition that if the, so long as they had the temple, they were okay. But instead of trusting the God whom the temple was to represent the presence of, they were trusting in the temple. Matter of fact, God's presence had long since left the temple by that point in Jeremiah. And so too now the people were failing to see that something superior, something greater than the temple was here. More than that, the one whom the new the one whom the scriptures tell us is the new temple was standing in their presence. The man in whom God and man perfectly meet, God with us, Emmanuel. They could not see that this temple of brick and stone would once again be torn down, never to be rebuilt. And instead, they would try to tear down Jesus, the true temple. But as Jesus said in John chapter 2, in three days, I will raise it up. And now in Christ, the true temple no longer would, would, in the true temple, no longer would the Gentiles be shut out. Instead, the wall that was called the dividing wall, the wall of hostility that stood between the Gentile court and the inner courts was torn down in Christ so that all who call upon his name could be saved and brought into the holy of holies, God residing with his people and his people residing in Christ. For Jesus is not only our king, but he's also our high priest. Opening up the way for us to come to the throne of grace with confidence. The supremacy of Christ is on display as he comes into the temple. By the way, all of Jesus' three messianic offices are seen in this text. And messianic offices were offices of anointing. You anointed kings, you anointed prophets, you anointed priests. He is the king as he rides into town, he is the priest who cleanses the temple and foreshadows the new temple. The the temple that foreshadowed a new temple. And next we see him doing what only prophets could do in the Old Testament. And that is carrying out miracles. And so his authority is powerfully exercised. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. These last couple of points are going to go a lot quicker, so don't freak out. The blind and the lame came into him in the temple and he healed them. First, we must see that the healings of themselves were a declaration of Jesus' messianic role. Remember that Jesus announced his mission in Luke chapter 4 by quoting Isaiah 61. And one of the signs that the Messiah was who he said he was, that he'd be healing, in particular, healing the blind. Healing the blind was a particularly powerful demonstration of authority. But all these healings here are, are, are powerful displays of, of who Jesus is. These aren't retinal headaches that the people are having uh, these aren't arthritic, arthritic joint pains. These are blind people who can't see, who all of a sudden see. These are joints that have been twisted, all of a sudden straightening out. This is powerful stuff on display. So the miracles themselves are testimonies to who Jesus is, that he was the authoritative king, authoritative even over nature as he came into Jerusalem. But much more than that, again, we need to see the powerful symbolism here. If you look back at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8, you'll see that the blind and the lame ...are excluded from God's house by the decree of King David. But now the son of David is on the scene and he's healing them. And where is he healing them? In the temple. He is healing them in the temple. Jesus is making a way for those who were previously excluded to come into the presence of God. Jesus is demonstrating his authoritative power to make straight the paths that were previously crooked... He is demonstrating his kingly power to reverse the curse. He is demonstrating his power to cleanse people and bring them to God. Jesus is the new temple and the new sacrifice. For he is the one by whose stripes we all will be healed. He is giving them a foretaste of what his death will accomplish for we were all born blind in our sin and crippled by our depravity. Yet Jesus comes saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And through him our eyes are open and our walk is restored and our uncleanliness is removed. And anyone with eyes to see would have known that no mere man had this type of authority. No mere man could do this. So it's no surprise that the next thing we see is that His divinity is unashamedly declared. His divinity is unashamedly declared. This is the last few verses of the text. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Apparently the kids were the last straw for them. Okay? Kids kids praised. Okay, you've gone too far, Jesus. Verse 16, And then he said to them, Or they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Now Jesus does not respond, oh, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They must have gotten out of children's worship. Sorry, let's shuffle them off somewhere else. He he doesn't say, oh, would someone just quiet them down? I'm having an important conversation with the chief priests over here. Nor does he merely say, just let them praise the king. Just let them praise the king. Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, takes it up a notch. He takes it up a big notch. He says this, Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? Now to see how Jesus elevates this, we need to see where this came from. Carrie read it earlier. Psalm 8. That's Psalm 8 verse 2. Psalm 8 verse 1 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Who are the infants and the babes praising in Psalm 8? They are praising God Almighty. So the Pharisees, and then they're upset. Hey, stop this. And Jesus, oh, go ahead, let them worship God. Whoa. Every unveiling takes Jesus closer to the cross. Because every unveiling gets those religious leaders that much more upset. And every unveiling also... Leads the crowd to begin to think, well, this isn't the kind of king we wanted. The unveilings are actually leading him to the cross. He is God, not just the Messiah. Oh, yes. Now the claims are complete and full. Jesus doesn't just have the right pedigree, it's not just about his humility. The reason for his supremacy and the source of his authority is his divinity. Jesus is God with us, 100% man, son of David, 100% God, son of God. That's the king I want. That's the king I hope you want. I, I kind of laughed. I love the video. And some of you wanted to clap. I heard it. I heard some of you go. Because Baptists don't do Palm Sunday, right? Baptists, we don't, we, don't, we don't do to keep our elbows down, hands in your lap. Guys. Sometimes I wonder, do we believe these things? Do we believe these things? I don't say you... I'm not going to judge your faith by how happy clappy you are. But hey, feel free to clap after a video like that. What a proclamation. All of it grounded in the Scriptures. So this is the king I want. In this day and age of political foolishness... I don't want a president or a ruler or a king who can fix the economy. I want one who rules the cosmos. I don't want one who can manage the military. I want one who can manage molecules. I don't want one who has his finger on the atomic weapons. I want one whose fingers hold the atomic structure of the universe together. That's my king. That's who I want to serve. My best friend and I, we saw Leon again. There was a second coming of Leon. This time, it was 1992, in the Miami airport. We were getting our bags in Miami, and we looked over after coming back from Ecuador for a trip that we'd gone there. We looked over, and standing in line, still chain-smoking, with everyone else with their bags, was Leon. Just standing there. Before, we were like, whoa, that was Leon. This time, we are going, whoa, that's Leon. He looked even more disheveled now, sitting there with everyone else, just getting his bags. The fame of man fades. The power of man is fleeting. The works of men become footnotes in history. But Jesus, my friends, is not done. Jesus is returning, and this time, not on a donkey. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12 speak of us gathering around the throne again with palm branches. And then Revelation 19, 11 says this about his second return, his second coming. Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one else knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and purple, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, friend, come. Come to the king now while you can. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time that the humble servant, son of David, holds out nail-pierced hands with amnesty. Come, all who labor and heavy laden, He will give you rest. Come while amnesty is being offered, while pardon is being granted, while reconciliation can still be sought, while adoption is on the table. Come, turn from your rebellion against the king. Seek his gracious mercy and believe. And for those in here already in the king's family, those who are already reconciled, let us together come to the Lord's table. Come to this table in a foretaste of the feast we will enjoy When the king returns, let's pray. King Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for this day that we have set aside. Not only as we do every Sunday to come and worship you and adore you and praise you for your resurrection, for all that you accomplished through your death, burial, and resurrection. But also, Lord, it's okay to remember days like Palm Sunday and all the events that led up to Your glorious and magnificent resurrection. And so, Father, we come right now and we ask that you'd help us remember the Son and glorify the Son as we remember the blood that he shed, something we will talk about and think about in just a few days in the body that was broken. But we also do this in remembrance of him until he returns. So we also proclaim the resurrection. He's coming back coming back on a horse, a white one. God, we praise you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.